Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. I just sort of say the second thing is, and I, I, I try to say this in jest, but I'm really serious when I say it. Man, if you can't have fun selling M&Ms and Snickers and Starburst <laughs> and Skittles, I just don't know how you can have fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. Uh, I mean, that's just a simple proposition is, yeah. boy, you know, what we do and, you know, what we're able to go and put out in front of the marketplace is just, I mean, it's truly cool stuff, right? Um, and so let's, let's be cool about it, right? Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years... I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is Anton Vincent, the president of Mars Wrigley North America. This is one sweet interview. Anton looks over brands such as my favorite M&Ms, Skittles, Twix, Mars, Three Musketeers, Snickers, Orbit, and many, many more. Mars is one of the largest private companies in the world. It is about 100 years old with worldwide sales near $50 billion. Mars brings confection brands to the market, of course, but also a variety of products and services for both people and their pets. My guest Anton has been at Mars since 2019 after spending the majority of his career, 20 years, at General Mills, which is where I met him. Anton is a native of Jackson, Mississippi. He earned a bachelor's in finance at Sam Houston State University and an MBA in marketing from the Kelly School at Indiana University. On top of his responsibilities at Mars Wrigley, Anton serves as a board director for International Paper. This is my conversation with a guy who's excited about making people happy every day. Here's my wonderful conversation with Anton Vincent. Anton, welcome finally to the CMO Podcast. And I have to get this episode started with a tough direct question. Why can I not find my favorite dark chocolate peanut M&Ms in more stores. I was shopping yesterday for them and couldn't <laughs> find them. So please help. Well, you know, Jim, here's what I would say that uh, uh, that dark chocolate is very popular, has been popular for a very long time for some obvious reasons. And uh, we're continuing to find supply for you and others who, who have the same okay. issue and concern. So I will tell you, uh, we will continue to uh, be at your service on that one. That's a very smooth answer, Anton. <laughs> well, listen, I full disclosure, we didn't talk about this before the show. 
I am and everyone who knows me deeply and closely like family and kids yeah. I grew up with, I am an M&M's super fan, right? I had right. the dispenser, the branded dispenser. My wife gave me M&M's this year for my birthday, which just happened a few weeks ago. My business wow. manager gave me customized M&M's when my first book came out. They're always mm -hmm. on my desk. I'm holding them up for you to see and listen to. There's nothing like that sound. And yeah. I have dark chocolate, plain M&M's in here and peanut M&M's. So I'm always on the hunt for dark chocolate, peanut M&M's. In fact, my attorney also likes them and we give them to, we give them to each other as gifts. So Anton, ah, is this level yeah. of passion and commitment to M&M's unusual or am I just kind of one of the, one of the masses? I, I think you're just one of the masses, man. I can't tell you how many times in venues I'm in where people just, uh, I mean, you know, we all understand this whole nature of brand champions yeah. and, uh, but look, uh, on a brand with this kind of scale, this kind of iconography and, you know, been around for 80 plus years, it, it is amazing. And I would say consumers of all shapes, sizes, ages, geographies, you know, have a very similar passion and intensity around their uh, their belief in their consumption and their relationship with M&M's, the brand and M&M's, the product as well. And so it's, it's, it's really it's really a comforting to see just the consistency of where I am around the world. I mean, it, it is a similar impact as well. So what do you think the creators of this brand 83 years ago would think about the brand today? Do you think they had any idea? I would tell you they had absolutely no idea. <laughs> I mean, because they were simply like, like most people who created, you know, great iconic brands, you know, they were really trying to solve simple issues, right? They, they, they saw a very simple benefit. Uh, they probably found a formulation or two, they could get them there. And, you know, their idea of building a brand and having that brand have connection and relevance and all the things we talk about in very technical terms was clearly not on their minds. You know, they were really trying to serve a need and to be a uh, high quality and consistent and being able to supply it. I mean, it was very sort of fundamental kind of thing at that point in time as well. So I, I think they would just be, uh, they, they, they would really be over their heads around, wow, people think this much about this <laughs> simple concept, this simple construct in their head. So we're going to talk about your other brands, of course, but this is a yeah. big one and it's one that I love. What What is it, do you think, about this brand that has made mm -hmm. it so current, so relevant, so loved, so ubiquitous? Yeah. I mean, it's achieved a level that, few brands frankly have. So if you could boil it down, Anton, into one or two key lessons from this remarkable 83-year-old yeah. story, what would that be? Yeah, I, I think I think it comes down to just a couple of things, Jim. I, I think the first thing is, is that uh, it is simple in its construction and in the benefits that it offers. Right. You know, look, it's uh, it's pretty simple when you sort of sort of decompose it. It's it's, it's uh, candy covered chocolate or it's candy covered chocolate with peanuts in the middle of it. Now, we found ways, obviously, to put other things inside the shell over time and innovate it. Uh, but it's very simple in its construct. The other thing, you know, which is pretty basic is that, uh, look, it comes in multiple colors. It comes in multiple shapes and sizes. So the concept of it's something for everyone is sort of resident in the brand and in the brand assets. You know, you don't, you don't have to be on one side of an issue of a color. It's sort of like the brand is something for everybody. And so while we don't really talk about it a lot in those type of stark terms, but you sort of think about it and look at it, it's like, wow, okay, I might not like red, but I love brown and green. Uh, I might not like orange, but I like the other colors. And so we always say that people can always find something that they like or they love in the context of M&M's. Well, you have a wide por portfolio. I also love Twix, but I, I actually love a lot of your brands, but Twix is one of my wife's favorite. So we won't get into that quite as much, but we are recording going into June here. And mm -hmm. 
uh, June is Skittles month, right? And you have a super, super creative pride activation for the month of June. This is the fourth year in a row. I think that Skittles has supported the LGBTQ plus community and the amazing work of GLAD, the Gay Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. Tell us a story of why your team at Skittles is so committed to this community and what or who inspired the amazing creative idea for June 2023. Yeah, you know, what, what, what's really interesting about it, and, and I'm, I'm glad you asked me the question is because this, I'm glad you used the word activation because that is kindly what it started out being and, and that is what it continues to be uh, as well. And so, look, there was a group of associates, you know, we had done, I would say some light research uh, around Skittles consumption. And so we thought we had a, you know, a pretty, pretty decent skew in that particular community. I wouldn't say that it was sort of strong and blowing you out of the way, but it was clear, like, okay, wow, there's something going on here. And so we're like, hey, look, this is a distinct community, uh, targetable in a lot of ways, uh, certainly highly committed, uh, highly connected. And if there is a way that we can acknowledge that uh, with the platform that we have called Skittles, a lot like M&Ms, multi-flavor, multi-colored, so on and so forth, Wow, that might you know help us to sort of find to see if there is a spark there. And um, in short terms, there was a spark there. <laughs> you know, we've decided to continue to stoke that and to spark that, and then to try to evolve just to being something that acknowledged them to supporting and seeing them in very very visible ways, still connected to the brand as well. And so that that is what it continues to be. It is interesting, and you know, in the times that we're in, particularly as a marketer, you know, any any message that you put out there. Um, can be construed as a political one, can be construed as a social one. And so I think we've had to make sure that we're clear on that. You know, we're proud to support uh, that particular community in the ways that we do it. Uh, we're not making a statement other than that we support them. Uh, people can have their own machinations around why or what have you. Uh, but it, it has turned out to be a, a beautiful thing and in a way that we can do it in the context of a brand structure and a brand DNA and a brand compass that's very consistent around what we're about. Uh, and that, I think that's the beautiful thing uh, about it as well. Now, I would just sort of say connecting with those organizations has been wonderful. Um, they're very coordinated. They're a very influential organization. They're very clear in who they are and how they present themselves to the public. And I, and I think for them, it is fantastic to have a, a brand of our stature to be associated with them. I would say, say in very, um, my, my words, good, right, and true reasons. I mean, clearly we're trying to develop a, a consumer base here. Uh, we're trying to show support, but we're trying to do it in a way that, that that I think works for us and works for them. And I think that's proven to be the case over the last five years. Your activation this summer is with artists. thought it was yeah. really pretty cool. So tell us a bit yeah. about that. Well, you know, like in any community, you know, there's always so much talent in any community. I mean, it really is, right? And so uh, just because of the nature and sort of how how we get a sense of that community, we know that there's a, there's a tremendous uh, uh, artistic streak that runs through that community in all uh, formats and all sort of genres. And so in this case, we just thought that we try to tap into it and make it sort of central to the actual presentation to the uh, uh, to the public, which is primarily our packaging as well. And again, I think that has allowed us to tap into creators and senses that I don't think we would have gotten to on our own. And again, I think it furthers our relationship with that particular community and allows us to leverage them in ways that I think are good for them again and good for us as well. And so we're, we're just very excited about all the creativity that I just don't think we would have been able to get to in our own auspices and our typical ways that we would go and design something as well. So so we're, we're looking forward to see how it connects. Um, and maybe there's a part two of this at some point as well, depending on how it does in the marketplace. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 
81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Before we leave Skittles, I mean, it's a brand that just has had this creative energy for so long. I mean, you, you do ads in high profile venues and in events, and it's always out there, you know, it's really, and so I'd like you to speak a bit about the creative culture on this brand team, because it has, it has been long lasting, right? It has, it has survived, I'm sure some leadership changes. So much of our audience wants to help create a culture of great creativity and innovation and excitement and cultural relevance. This brand seems to have done that very well. So what could we all learn from the Skittles brand team and how they look at the brand and how they look at activations such as the one we've been talking about? Yeah, well, you know, the, the core of Skittles is all about being unpredictable. Now, I would tell you just as a classically trained, <laughs> trained marketer, you're like, oh, I don't know if I like that. <laughs> you, you know, I want to have a frame. I want to have a narrative. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to, you know, sort of execute behind that frame and narrative. But, you know, and so, but that is, that is our, our creative strategy, I think, around us. So it does give us at once, you know, I would sort of say limitless canvas in terms of going creative, give direction to creators when we brief them. Um, but it also can get you into some mucky waters, you know. And so when you say you're unpredictable, that means, you know, your sense of what's possible could be limitless. <laughs> and, and, and while limitless sounds good, you know, you, you could sort of lose control of the narrative. So that's sort of the risk part of it as well. But I think I think with us and our agencies, I think we have a really good understanding around. Uh, yes, we want to be sort of li- limitless with a frame, if you would. Right. To make sure that you, we're still given that creative um uh, that creative freedom. We're also giving people and our consumers sort of that, wow, I, I never saw that one coming. Uh, I never saw that dimension of the brand. I never see them get into it or get into a conversation or get into a narrative in that manner. And so I think we've done a pretty good job at allowing it to have some space, maybe some unpredictable space without without getting ourselves in trouble, if you would. And, and I think the thing, particularly in this day and age, you know, getting yourself in trouble is not a, <laughs> it's not a bad thing. Right. Uh, because at, at some point, if you're being authentic and you're really letting the, the creative process sort of work itself out, you know, you want to make sure that you are that you are true to who you say you are and be willing to defend things that they, they tend to go sideways with you as well. That's the risk you take, you know, when you sort of go on a strategy like this as well. And so I just know as a as a marketer and as someone that leads an organization, you know, I try to give the teams as much leeway as I can, as long as either our CMO or me, OK, look, we need to understand what is the what does the arc look like and where could this arc go? And as long as I'm good with that space, you know, I give them quite a bit of freedom to make sure that they, that they can be as creative as possible, you know, to get breakthrough, to get loyalty, 
uh, and obviously drive sales on the back end. Anton, you're president of Mars Berkeley North America. You have global responsibilities as well, but you're also a leader that I have known and discovered and found over time to have very clear beliefs and principles. So I'd like to talk about a few of those today. And the first one is, you believe that we as leaders of large brands and enterprises have a commitment and a need to have a relentless focus on the next generation of people, of consumers, the youngsters, the young people. So could you speak a bit more about that belief and how that comes to life with you in your day-to-day -day work in what you see as important in your scope? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're asking that, Jim, because, I, you know, I've always had an abiding belief because, you know, at one point we were all young. <laughs> yeah. And, and I always try to center myself on that person who is, boy, has some talent, has some commitment, is willing to put the work in, you know, may have a, you know, a big view of the world, whether it's right, wrong, or different, I don't really care. But, you know, I, my whole thing is about there is intention and commitment and drive there. And my, my job as a leader is to create the kind of environment where that can exist for very, very productive reasons, right? And so and so, I, I'm really very focused on that as well. So part of what I do is, you know, I'm still active in mentoring. Uh, I, I mentor people now sort of across the board, but, you know, I'm partial to people on the demand side of the business, mostly on the marketing side. Um, I understand that world, I understand what they're going through, I understand how it's changing, I understand how leaders need to be tomorrow versus where they are today or where they were yesterday as well, and can try to give some action on that. You know, one of the things that uh, that I always try to do as well is to ensure that I am I am connecting myself with causes or organizations that are trying to do it at scale. Uh, and I know at some point we're going to talk about Becca as well. And so, you know, very involved in terms of uh, creating organizations and supporting organizations that can do that kind of work at scale at incredible high quality and connection with some of the best marketers in the world as well. And so. Uh, the scale piece of that, because at some point, you know, as individuals, we can only go do so much. We can only mentor so many people. Uh, so I've really tried to put my focus on how do we build systems? How do we build platforms to make sure that that type of activity can happen at scale with people who are really incredible at what they do? <laughs> right. Uh, and that 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 is something that we haven't seen, particularly in a community of people of color as well. And so, you know, we, we a lot of us have been fortunate to be quote unquote, successful in the industry, have had a, you know, long careers in the industry. And, you know, that focus on making sure that we're giving back, uh, that we're building pipelines, that we're making sure uh, the young who are coming of age uh, have real skill, real insight, are able to take this thing to a whole new level that we couldn't. You extend that thinking and that belief to consumers as well. I mean, do you spend an, an, an inordinate amount of time with younger consumers, you know, talking about them, measuring their response to your brands, et cetera? Yeah, we do. You know, um, and, and you and me are sort of similar to this. You know, we were classically trained, right? Uh, which means that we actually spent time with consumers. We actually went into the households. We actually had good, at least physical context around what does everyday life look like? And therefore, where there are needs, where there are benefits, where there are gaps as well. So I continue to do that, put a lot of time into that. I think I'm fortunate, maybe some people of my age, my ilk, you know, I have kids in that age range, you know, I have everything from a 16 year old to a 23 year old. And, you know, the things that they tell me and the insights that they give me, it might be an N of three, but I think, I, I think they're typical for the age group and for this genre, you know, it's just, you know, very different than certainly what I was thinking <laughs> at that age and what my value system was at that age. And so if you sort of scale that into a generation, sort of the, the themes that come out of that are just very, very powerful. And so of course I take that, vet that, uh, and making sure that we are, you know, at, at at the crucible around how people are thinking and how they're 
activating their value systems. That's the one thing I see in this particular cohort of sort of Gen Zennials is, boy, they have a value system. It's pretty strong and they act on it. <laughs> you know, they make decisions on it, sometimes big decisions, but a lot of times very small decisions, which our businesses happen to be. They're small decisions, $2 at a time. Uh, but there's a lot of scrutiny around, you know, what they're buying, why they're buying and who's behind the brand, those types of things. And those things have always been there, but to the extent that they are intentional and that they are internalized with this particular cohort is uh, is really really incredible. A second belief you have is in your organization's simple and relevant purpose for your category, and your purpose is to make people happy every day. Pretty good, and pretty natural for the business you're in. So we talk a lot about purpose on this show, and we talk about you know how to keep your team focused on it how to measure it, how to value it, how to speak about it. And that's not always easy with the complexity of running a modern global business. So any insights, Anton, about how you keep yourself and your team focused on this beautiful, simple purpose for the business that you run? Yeah, a really good question. I, I think one of the things, and you know, a lot of this stuff, as you know, is sort of contextual. I, I would say at Mars, you know, and I don't want to brag about Mars, but let me brag about Mars. <laughs> okay, go for one, it. One of, one, one of the beautiful things about our, I mean, really beautiful things about our culture is that, man, I mean, we really are centered around a few simple things. Everybody's familiar with our five principles, um, and they're just not five words that's in all the conference room. I mean, it is the way that we comport ourselves. It's the way that we connect. It's the way that we partner. It's the way that we do business around the world. So it is a true sort of ecosystem, not just of thoughts and values, but how we execute those thoughts and values. And then how are we incented on those thoughts and values? And so we obviously extend that to our, our brands and all the purposes that we put in the individual businesses on the individual brands. So this whole idea around um, inspiring moments of happiness every day uh, is pretty critical because I think it gives us a anchoring point around why we do what we do. Yes, we have big brands. Yes, we have big global iconic brands, like, you know, many companies do. Um, but, you know, we're, we're here to do something that's pretty simple and not just simple, but it's essential to life, right? So, no, we're not a drug. We can't fix you. We can't do all those things. Well, boy, I like the softer side of life, the life that the part that we all need to survive and enjoy life, that's something that we can sort of nail home through our brand and through our propositions. You know, we can keep people very focused on that simple thing. You know, it's pretty powerful when you get that many people sort of rowing in that same direction because it unlocks creativity. Um, it unlocks an intensity around protecting that sort of singular focus manifestation. And then it forces us with our creative partners to be very single-minded that, okay, look, we're letting you guys go and create, but it's got to land here. Like that's the ultimate measurement around, is it driving and it is inspiring moments of everyday happiness, right? And so it makes those words real and it makes those words uh, have accountability as well. And so when I think about it as a concept, when I think about it as an organizing principle, and when I think about it as a measuring stick to what we do, particularly on the creative side, it gives us a lot of, um, it gives us a lot of uh, clarity in terms of how we sort of run it through our system. So I think those are sort of the main ways that we sort of work with us as well. I just sort of say the second thing is, and I, I, I try to say this in jest, but I'm really serious when I say it. Man, if you can't have fun selling M&Ms and Snickers and Starburst <laughs> and Skittles, I just don't know how you can have fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, I mean, that's just a simple proposition is, yeah. boy, you know, what we do and, you know, what we're able to go and put out in front of the marketplace is just, I mean, it's truly cool stuff, right? Um, and so let's let's be cool about it, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Do you have any hints or or processes or rituals to make sure you keep having fun? I mean, I, I, when I was when I was at PNG as CMO, we the CEO and I got together every all, all actually top fifteen brands at least once a year, and we didn't talk about the business. I mean, we had other ways to do that. We talked about how are you doing on your purpose. How's how's how how are people feeling about your brand inside and outside the company? Is our brand stronger than it was last time we met? Why or why not? Where are you trying to take it? You know what 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 uh, how to keep fresh in terms of innovating on the purpose? So and it was it was a very powerful signal that we're having a meeting not about your quarterly numbers, but about the health of the brand and the health of the, a brand vis a vis its purpose. So any any thoughts ideas? That you that you do to be sure that people understand this is important. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. We we do we do something a little bit different, you know. And, and most people, if you've been around the industry, you know this. You know, mo most of our associates uh, don't do this work. Most of our associates are in plants, <laughs> right? They're, they're producing the stuff, and so what we try to do is to make sure that we're taking that brand experience to our plants because you know what? I get paid to believe in the brand, right? I'm in the middle of it. I'm in the strategy. I'm in the execution. You know, we do all the things that we do. But, you know, their job is to create these things every day at scale, at mass, high quality, you know, close to zero defects, those types of things. And so one of the things we do is to make sure that that brand experience is highly resident within our own associate population and to a large degree down into the plants where most of our associates exist. And so we have things like associate days that obviously celebrate the plants and things like that. But that's where we really bring sort of the full value of what we do externally into those spaces so just to remind them it's like man this is what we're about we're about creating happiness every day externally where we're doing it internally as well that's one of the ways that we do it now i would say secondly and i think you know most 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 brand companies probably do this boy you know our plans when we're actually putting together plans you know for financial outcome look it's just not about you know what kind of sales or profit we're going to make this year it is an experience <laughs> i mean we're we're letting everybody know it's like boy this is the fullness of these beautiful pieces of intellectual property we get to go and make relevant today, tomorrow, and into the future. And here's all the great things that we're going to do to them as well. And so that, that is always a great galvanizing point for people to understand what's coming, right? What's going to hit the marketplace and to have that kind of advanced notice and advanced understanding. I mean, it really is a motivating factor. And I think we're getting better and better around how to do that. So admittedly, I would sort of say a lot of our stuff is primarily internally motivated because much like P&G, big global companies spread out all around the world. We're trying to make sure that those brand experiences are felt internally first as they start to get themselves out into the marketplace. Yeah, it's so critical. Hey, Anton, a third belief I want to talk about is around innovation. And, and I love how you think about innovation. You, you say that everything we bring to the market should be different and better. Those are two big words, different and better. And that's a lot easier said than done. You know, in the, sure in, in, is, the heat, in the heat of battle, when sales is saying, do we have any news on that brand? Well, maybe we don't have any news. So so keeping that standard up there is tough right. as a leader. Right. So I'd yeah. just like you to talk a bit about kind of how you operationalize that very powerful belief that that things that we bring to our retailers, our partners, our consumers, if we're going to spend time on it, it should be different and better. That's tough. Yeah, no, it is a tough standard. You know what? It should be a tough standard um, because, as you know, in many cases, we're putting capital behind it. We're putting investment behind it. And look, if we don't believe that it has an opportunity to break through and sustain, then we shouldn't do it. 
right? I, I wouldn't be a good steward of my company's resources. If I felt like I was putting stuff in the marketplace just to soak up shelf space. Now, good. Hey, look, we've all done it. I understand that exercise, so on and so forth, but that's not my belief system. I'll go back to the beginning. What I always sort of say is I've never seen a company be successful in innovation if they didn't have a strong core business. So for me, it actually begins at making sure that our core is as strong as that it can be. And if we're doing that, then it's forcing us to go and find those verticals of innovation to go and actually go and drive that core business as well. Um, I, I haven't been on a business personally in my 25 plus year career to sort of say, we got great innovation, we got a bad core. <laughs> like I've never seen those two things actually coexist. If they did, you know, you should run fast if you ever find yourself in a situation. So I do see it as a much more integrated situation because particularly we're building off of an existing brand. Uh, that brand needs to be as strong and as powerful as possible. It actually gives us a platform to go and do something different to be accepted in the marketplace as well. And that different, and I, I have said this on many occasions, not only do I have to be different, but I got to be better because that's what retailers are going to require us to be. And that's what's going to keep us on that shelf or, or, or online uh, you know, for a long, sustainable period, period of time. And uh, look, I don't mind having a high and tough standard because if we clear it, we got a great business <laughs> and we can spend behind it with high confidence and with high consistency as well. And so I, I want to keep that kind of tension in there uh, because look, if you got great people and great processes, um, you know, it doesn't take a lot to get you there. But once you get there, man, you know, it can be a beautiful thing for a long time. I could ask a lot what makes for a great leader. And I say in in so many words, what you just said in a few words, you know, a leader sets the standards. What you say yes and no to every day says everything. If, if you allow something to go forward or you stop something, you know, that's an action that, and people clearly see what you value. So I think that that space, and we kind of say it sometimes too cavalierly of being the standard setter for your organization, it's very powerful. And it's kind of, the unique work only a leader can do. Yeah, I I, I, I totally agree. And I, I think that, um, you know, it's interesting because people always, <laughs> people always ask me, and tell them, like, how, how does it feel working either for a private company, family-owned company, or essentially a non-publicly held company, right? Uh, because my, I, you know, I grew up in mostly publicly held companies. And I said, hey, look, you know, private companies are great places. You know, look, we got the same processes and things you got. We just don't, we just don't float a public equity out there. Um, but at the same time, you know, the whole stewardship thing is really ratcheted up because you're not just the stewardship of the brands or the enterprise. You know, you have a family and a legacy behind you as well. And so, you know, back to your whole idea around standards, you know, there's your own individual standards as a leader. And then there's those, those standards of, you know, a family that has a hundred plus year legacy behind you as well. And so, you know, one of the things we try to do is to make sure that, hey, let's understand what the standard is and let's understand why the standard is the standard. And what is the reward if we keep uh, you know, executing against that standard? And so, you know, my big thing is making sure people are aligned, not just on the same page, but why that page is constructed the way it's constructed. <laughs> like what makes us special in that exercise? And that's the part, back to your point, that's what leaders have to do. You have to separate out the activity from the purpose and the execution. And so we try to make sure we can make people stay at the same or the right altitude to make sure we can consistently, uh, you know, put big points on the board over time. The last belief I want to talk about, at least for today, is you believe in making an impact within Mars and also outside Mars. You're on the board of the National Confectioners Association, the Sustainable Food Policy Alliance, and perhaps most personal, and we already talked about that in this show, you're a founding member of BECA, the Black Executive CMO Alliance, with colleagues from Nike, Amazon, Netflix, and many, many other 
highly admired companies. So could you talk to us a bit about that, Anton? You're a founding member. What was the catalyst? You know, what's your hope for the organization? And why is this something that's so important for you to spend your precious time on? Yeah, well, thank you for giving me some time to talk about this, Jim. You know, um, Be Becca may end up being some of the most rewarding work that I have involved myself with, M maybe, maybe in my entire career. And, and here's why. Um, there are incredible people that were the first, we were one of the 28 original founders of Becca. And uh, I'll give this person who you know very well, uh, Jerry DeVard, uh, you know, sort of all the credit in the world because Jerry essentially said, hey, look, here's what we need to do. We need to make sure that we build a pipeline so when we're out of this game, it is full, it, it, it has incredible capability and expertise and is ready to sort of take our jobs one day, right? Because if you look down those pipelines sort of collectively, like, yeah, not feeling like we're there yet, or we're not getting people to stay in the profession long enough to position themselves to vie for these big jobs. And so I think we were all singularly focused around what that concept looked like. Uh, it what is it has clearly never been about us, but the fact that we can convene this kind of talent and that we can provide this kind of super high quality expertise and engagement and mentorship uh, around people who have, yes, they got great jobs, but they're also some of the best at what they do in their areas. You know, that helps us to at least put a dent in that proposition, you know, sort of over time. And uh, look, from the day that Jerry probably made the first call, it was like, we're in. I mean, it, it was the it was amazing. Now, Jerry is one of those people you just don't say no to either. No, I agree. She's been a guest on the show. It's a fabulous episode. No, and I agree with that. You don't say no to Jerry. Yeah, you don't say no to Jerry. But you know, you know, we're we're two years into this, and uh, you know, it only continues to get better. There's super high engagement. Uh, we're now sort of two cohorts in. Uh, these young leaders are doing incredible things. They're getting amazing value out of the experience and out of the engagement. And we know that we're doing the right things for the right reasons and we can be able to sustain this over time, you know, with people who have, you know, some of the biggest jobs in the world across these industries, across these companies and, you know, running some of the world's greatest brands as well. So it, it really is not just needed work, but it is work that is rewarding and we can see it's going to be the benefit and not just for those individuals, but for the industry, right? We can, we can stand up and sort of say, this is going to make the industry better. So it's, it's still a relatively young organization. What kinds of yeah. things do you do to keep it vital, keep it growing? You know, what are your, how, how much are you in person? How much do you do yeah. electronically? Yeah. Well, I always say that uh, Beck is my second job. <laughs> because if you know Jerry DeVar, you know, she doesn't do anything halfway. Uh, but there's a couple of things. So there's really two tracks. Like, you know, we're focused on the, you know, we'd focus on the talent and making sure that we're really creating experiences for them that are really uplifting, that are super high quality, they can go back and apply immediately right at, at their places of work that's that's a really key element we're just not here talking to you we want you to go we want you to absorb and apply right that's the first thing the second thing is and and i think we imagine this but i think if, if you talk to enough of us you probably know a fair amount of us you um man just the camaraderie amongst, amongst this group of people because i would say we probably knew each other or knew of each other but uh you know to, to be able to call um to be able to call a Remy Kent uh, at, at Progressive, to be able to call a Julius Robinson at Marriott, you know, to be able to call a Shonda Watkins at Nike, uh, to you know, to to brainstorm, to elevate, to just share, because you know, at, at these levels, Jim, you know that there's not a whole lot of people you can call, right? Because you're expected to know everything, you're expected to have the answers, and so the intellectual capability that is in this group, and I think our growing ability to leverage it. 
is just really incredible. And so, and I think we knew that that was possible. That was probably never the intent, but I think we're getting value out of it as participants, as leader participants in this group. And I, and I think it's just, um, as, as a collegial experience, it's probably one of the better ones I've had in my life. We're working to get a few of the group on the show when we're in Cannes. We're recording this mm -hmm. episode here with you, Anton, a few weeks from the Cannes Festival. And we're, yeah. we're working to get a few of the Becca group on the on the show in Cannes. So anyway, right. we'll let you know right. if we need help. But I don't think we will. Oh, <laughs> I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a fair amount of us over there as well working. Yeah. So uh, hopefully yeah. you'll be able to sort of secure us as well. But, you know, just I'll just say it's a it's a great group of people, a great group yeah. of human beings, you know, united around a very common purpose. And uh, like I said, with, with Jerry's passion. And, and convening power, to be honest with you, is it, it is it is something that is you know that has been leaded for a long time, and we're doing it. Super. Well, let's get back to your your role, your other role at Mars Wrigley yeah. North America. <laughs> uh, you've been in that a few years, and I'd, I'd like you to talk a bit about what you love about this role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a couple of things. I'll I'll talk to you about you know why I decided to come to Mars. You know, I, I was at General Mills for a long time. I left at the end of sixteen. Um, when I left, I had an uncompete, so I was doing some private equity stuff and helping some firms out. And, you know, once I said, it's, it's probably time for me to get another job, <laughs> I, I didn't look for long. I, I ran into uh, someone from Mars and, you know, what was interesting that I, you know, much like you, like, I, I'm a fan of some of the brands and I was like, wow. But, I, but one of the things I always said is like, man, I just, just don't think we're punching at the weight that we could be. Right. I was like, man, if I had my hands on an M&M's or a Snickers or a Starburst or a Skittles or one of the 15 gum brands we have because we have a 60 percent share in the United States. I was like, boy, I could do something with that. And so I do think it was sort of the challenge, um, the intrigue about working for a private company around the things that I could be allowed to do and the time frames that I would have to do them. You know, $50 billion global company across three verticals, um, rock solid value system, great family. Um, and really talented individuals just really built around a real simple purpose, you know, about making tomorrow a better day and, and us being sort of provocateurs in making the world a better place. And so if you got scale, if you got capability, you got talent, you got resources, like, boy, that sounds like somewhere I want to be. So I was sort of say that was a, that was a major reason I came. Once I got here, you know, I, I think some of my inclination was true. We had great brands. I, I didn't necessarily know where our brands were pushing the cultural envelope like I felt like we had the opportunity and the permission to. Um, and so we got to work and making sure we sort of clean up those propositions, clean up the compasses, and then really started to understand, all right, look, man, M&M's, probably one of the top five or six consumer brands out there, man. Look, what could we stand for? How could we enforce that, man? How can we sort of get ourselves to a better place and obviously drive business behind that as well? Uh, you look at Snickers, we had an association with the NFL, probably weren't executing in a way that we we could have done to sort of maximize that. We said, wait, great property. Um, how do we make sure that we sort of leverage that property in, in more in different ways? Uh, so, you know, I can go on down the line. But, you know, when I came to Mars, I, there was one proposition I talked to my boss at the time. I said, hey, I do have one fundamental belief. If your big brands can't grow and can't drive culture, you don't have a chance. <laughs> and I still believe that. And I, and I think we have been moving against that whole theme for the last four years and making sure our biggest brands are really driving culture, meaning something, asserting a point of view, and then driving business behind that as well. And that that has been incredible on so many levels because I think we've done things that uh, certainly people have probably tried to talk about in the past, but we've actually gotten them done. You know, we've touched M&Ms in, in a way that it hasn't been touched in the past. 
we have these tremendous brand assets and those brand assets now starting to feel like an ecosystem, right? And starting to sort of push in ways that we probably had not imagined in the past. And, uh, you know, it, it feels really good. I would say we got a, we got a long way to go. Uh, I think we're on the right path. But uh, it, it is a very interesting, not just interesting company, but a set of brands and propositions. And I've said this publicly, but we're just scratching the surface, Jim. Even to this day, we're just scratching the surface. So I still see belief and growth and a lot of big vision around some of these brands that can really get us to a very different place. Anton, I'd like to sort of punctuate or come back to two things you said in that, that fabulous lesson you just shared. The first one is big brands must be growing and driving culture. I, I have to say, when I became CMO of PNG, it was a new leadership group, largely. AG Laffley was a new CEO. And honestly, I think the most the, the most powerful thing he did as CEO is he came to our group, our newly formed group, and said, our big brands aren't growing. This company will never be healthy if the tide, the pampers, the Bounty, the Charmin, the Always, the Pantene, if they're not growing, this company cannot grow. So we have to bring the love to those brands. We have to bring the people to those brands. We have to bring the ambitions, the resources to those brands. And frankly, that statement and then activating that was the turnaround of the company. We doubled our size in, in six or seven years, increased our margins because the brands, the big brands were growing. So anyway, powerful well, lesson. Well, well, I'm in good company because, you know, AG, as you know, is fabulous. <laughs> and you guys did a great job and turned that big thing around. So yeah. I'm feeling good about myself after you told me that. Jim. No, but it's for our audience. It's it's the most powerful principle. If your big, healthy yeah. brands in your company are not healthy, your yeah. big, you know, it just, it's not going to go, it's not going to go well. As yeah. you said, the core, the core has to be healthy if your innovation works. Yeah. yeah. Totally believe so. that. Hey, the totally second thing you said, yeah. and you just passed through this very quickly, you said we had to clean up the compasses. Yeah. yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah, just you know, our, our brand strategies, how, how we built the brands on paper, brand DNA, brand architecture, you know, whatever your language is, and just making sure that, you know, we that we that we were clear and punctuated around what we want these brands to stand for. And and Jim, you you you've seen some brand strategies, you know, architectures and strategies. It's like, okay, I see, I see the words on the paper, but they don't mean anything. <laughs> like I could take these words, I could put them on any brand, and it, it may sound good and logical, but it doesn't sound differentiating. And it doesn't provide direction. And so I, I think, uh, you know, us along with our global team, you know, we got together and sort of said, hey, let's look at these things around again. Let's make sure that we're saying things in ways that we can really get behind them. Let's make sure that they're differentiated. And let's make sure we can go and brief off of that as well to get better work in the place where we decide to create. You know, so I think that was that that was a big undertaking, you know, from our perspective. And I would say, and I honestly sort of say this, I think we love our brands. I don't necessarily felt like we believed our brands could be big culture drivers if we allowed them to, right? And I'm not saying that every brand has to be a big culture driver. I wouldn't put that weight on every brand, but some can, some brands can be. Eminem's mean, obviously being one of those brands. So I think as we as we got sort of collective consciousness around that, you know, made some decisions, made some priorities, worked with our global content team, then uh, I think that gave us, you know. Gave us some confidence. And then, of course, we work with our content partners and creators on the agency side to say, hey, look, it's a new day. You know, we, we're ready to go and push the envelope in ways that only we can do it because we have the brands and the and the iconic nature and the legacy of these brands to sort of bring them into a future and to have a conversation with new consumers. So you're president of this big business unit. Where are you now, Anton, personally focused? Yeah, I'm personally focused on, on a couple of areas. You know, I, I spend... 
a lot of my time just developing leaders uh, because, you know, when you're running enterprise, man, you know, you got to be enterprise minded. You know, I, I need my supply chain leaders to be as great as my marketing leaders. I need my sales leaders to be as great as my quality leaders, right? Um, and because I am a part of a global team, then we spend a lot of time making sure that we can sort of grow in those markets that are going to provide us growth 10, 15, 20 years from now as well. And making sure as a person that runs North America is helping to set up the plan and the strategy and the promise to allow us to sort of have success into the future as well. So I spend a lot of my time you know, developing leaders, making sure we're getting people to the right places at the right trajectory or the right capabilities. Uh, spend a lot of my time making sure that we're looking at how we're pushing our business all around the world. You know, one of the things I always like to say about M&Ms, as big and as iconic as it is, Jim, we only have 55% penetration in the United States of America. So I sort of say, look, we got a lot of upside on, on M&Ms and even less than that in other markets around the world. And so back to our innovation point, um, some of this stuff is just not complicated. <laughs> like it, it really is not. So trying to get people focused on the on the right things and trying to sequence, you know, resources and, you know, work with our global partners to make sure that we are propagating these brands in culturally relevant ways all around the world. What do you feel is the toughest issue that brand builders at large are facing today? Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's two of them. I'm going to give you one. I think that's real. I'm going to give you one that's sort of just come upon all of us of late cause last four or five years. I mean, I think the thing is real is just this whole idea around sustainability. Um, and particularly as it relates to the CPG industry, because typically our things are housed in something that, you know, uh, is probably not that good for the environment. Um, this is big resources that are spent over time. And if I had to be honest with you, trying to figure out, is there a business model on the back of that? The true answer is we don't know, right? But the real answer is, look, we need to do it because that's our survival as a species, right? And that is our responsibility. And I think any company worth its weight in gold is obviously working on those things. So I think the whole concept of how we think about sustainability, how do we embed that into the brand construct? How do we choose to talk about that in ways that are appropriate? Um, how do we get value on the back end? I think that's the second thing, uh, the first thing. Second thing is, you know, we, you know, I go back to around pushing culture, man. Boy. Um, you could say the most innocent thing about your brand and it immediately gets politicized. It immediately gets politicized. And so I think the thing that I'm always trying to manage, particularly with our content partners, is let, let's let's not put the blinders on around how it lands, so on and so forth. So this whole idea around what does authenticity look like in your brand? Uh, how do you execute that? How do you push that? And then how do you get the inevitable backlash, regardless of your intent? And then how do you manage that in a social stream as well, right? You put something out there and as soon as you put it out there, you really can't control the response anymore, not in the world of social media. So it, it's it's this idea around authenticity with enough consciousness to know that there's blowback regardless of intent and then trying to manage that in a very, very authentic way, right? You know, one of the things I would say we've gotten high marks on and all the stuff we've done, particularly with M&Ms is we've been very clear around what M&Ms is about, what we want it to be about. It's about inclusion. Uh, it's, it's, it's about making sure that everybody has a seat at the table and everybody sees themselves in this franchise. And that may not be very popular or that may be spun very differently in certain parts of, uh, of, of the universe. And so we got to be good, right and true around what we're about, be consistent about it uh, and keep pushing forward around how we're trying to build this brand and how we try to have this brand show up in the world. So I think those are two things. Sustainability as a construct, as, as something that's sort of attached to your brand, how do you get sort of payout on it? And then secondly, just, just this idea around authenticity and message, authenticity and, and, and narrative, particularly when you have a social media environment that can that can really sort of play games with it. 
We had a great episode a few weeks ago with P&G actually speaking mm-hmm. about sustainability baked into the brand building model and the business model. So I, I think you're, I think you're dead on in that. That is, that is something all marketers are going to need to think very deeply about. We're going to learn from each other as we go on the second issue. You know, you've been through some of this. There are many, many cases happening as we speak and record this of brands that are, that are in the news in ways they may not like. And any counsel to those struggling with those issues. You talked about consistency, authenticity, understanding who your brand is. But as a leader, when this stuff happens, any thoughts, any advice, any inspiration as you have navigated this very, very tricky time, I think, in the in the in the brand building world. Yeah, I think the learning for us, and you know, it's a bit of a common practice for us, but I think we've stepped it up certainly the last couple of years is just making sure as we're putting these campaigns in most cases together that we really understand around how we expect the arc to go, right? We have a story, we have a narrative, we're going to insert that story and narrative in certain ways, and we expect to play out like A, B, C, and D, and it always has a natural arc to it. I think in our instance, particularly on our largest brands, what we try to do is to make sure that we are, you know, I hate to say this, but alerting, you know, particular family members is like, hey, look, we're doing M&Ms. It's going to look like this, you know, could get some backlash here, just sort of be ready for it. Because, you know, many times people will, people will call them, right? And sort of, or, or shout out to them and sort of say, wow, did you know that so-and-so was doing M&Ms? And so we also make sure that they are, they, they are informed. They're not making decisions per se, but that they're informed around what the expectation is. And so if there is blowback one way or another, you know, we have, you know, we have a process to make sure that, uh, that, uh, that we have all the comms around that to make sure that people understand what we're doing, why are we doing it? And in most cases, we will keep doing it <laughs> because we'll make sure that we are, you know, that we're being consistent and authentic around, you know, what we're doing with the brands as well. And so I, I think we have developed, I think we've developed quite a backbone in terms of making sure, A, understanding where those sensitive areas could be, you know, in some cases, having backup plans, having comms ready, so on and so forth, but also just getting through the end of the narrative and the play uh, because, you know, at some point, your, your your community comes to your defense. And that's the thing that we have found out because your community sees what you're trying to do. They understand what you're trying to do. And in the natural arc of sort of social media response, you know, is, is very, very, very well studied. You know, there's there's always a surge at the beginning uh, and then the community takes over and then, you know, you're using it in good waters as well. And so I think we've learned to be clear around what the sensitivities are, have a plan, but stay the course. Yeah. Uh, because that's, you know, let's do what we say we're going to do. Let's do it for the reasons we say we're going to do it. And let's finish the play. And I think that has served us well, you know, in the times when we put things out there that could potentially considered, uh, I wouldn't say controversy, but people could take it in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about your career path just for a moment. You've spent yeah. the bulk of your career at General Mills, 20 years and yeah. multiple roles. I'd like you to speak about what about that experience? Do you feel prepared you well to be mm-hmm. president at Mars Wrigley? And did you feel in any way unprepared to take on this responsibility at this company? Mm, it's a really good question, John. I see why your podcast is so successful. Uh, <laughs> thoughtful and fun, yeah. we said before we came on Th- the air, thoughtful right? Thoughtful and fun. Not That's easy, right. but those, thoughtful and fun. Those are, two, those are two words. Yeah, here's what I would say. I, uh, I loved my experience at General Mills because General Mills does two things incredibly well. They recruit some incredible talent. General Mills is a recruiting machine. P&G is, 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 is a similar thing. Look, we go for the, they went for the best and the brightest because we said, boy, uh, man, we, if we get the best and the brightest, we can teach them everything else. And we have enough breadth of brands and categories to give them very, very differentiated experiences. Uh, 
So I think that's number one. I think I was in a very, very high talent environment, a high talent environment that was very supportive. And so it was sort of iron sharpening iron. And uh, look, you need to be on top of your game at General Mills, just like you had to be on top of your game at P&G, because that's the kind of people who were there. And that was a good positive energy around it. And I think we all benefited, whether we stayed there or left and get to other things. And I think most of us look back and say it was a very positive experience. That's number one. Number two, I would sort of say, and this is where similarities, I think, with Mars, um, a really solid value system. You know, General Mills, trust me, they want to win more than anybody else, but they will never cut corners to win. And it's, and it's made very clear to you, you know, almost day one. We want to win, but we don't want to win at all costs. But the way we win is to create great talent, have great brands, invest against those brands, and be great competitors. Right. Like that was a very strong string, I would sort of say, in that as well. And then as you start to progress in your career and start to get very differentiated experience, either in different categories, uh, in different divisions. Um, you know, I just think the breadth that a multi-category company offers you helps to build you out in very, very differential ways. So incredible sort of demand skills, whether it was on sales or the marketing side, uh, incredible general manager skills, right? Because you're managing across an enterprise and then just the differentiation around those businesses. Um, and again, I just think the level of capability, you know, um, need to be on top of your game. And you learn to appreciate that, I think, from that perspective as well. So by the time I left General Mills, man, I run three divisions. Uh, I'd done acquisitions, you know, I'd, I'd done so many things. I just had the opportunity and just the, just the enterprise perspective, you know, to make sure I can apply that to whatever I chose to go and do as well. And so when I came to Mars, I felt like I was really, really well prepared. Obviously, from the marketing side, I'd done that, you know, obviously been a you know, sort of hardcore died in the wool sort of brand marketer, understand that exercise, had run many businesses, done acquisition part. I think the thing that was different was the fact that I had to adjust to this, to be honest with you, Jim, uh, but I worked for a public company. And as you know, the level of intensity in a public company, you got a report card every quarter and, you know, your mind is geared towards that report card, you know, because, uh, you know, there, 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 there's a market cap out there that goes up and down, you know, given what you do on a quarterly basis. And, you know, I, I always felt like it was a good positive energy uh, because we had those kind of people around us. But when you get into a private situation, you know, it's, it's a very different thing. You know, we, we, we always say we don't think in quarters, we think in generations. So that's a, that's a very different orientation coming into a business, say I pick up a something like an m and So I'm thinking about M&Ms yesterday, tomorrow, but well into the future. And also how this thing plays out outside of my borders as well, right? So it's a very different orientation in terms of scope and time and still being accountable for the here and today as well. And so I think I've, I've really appreciated what that looks like, what that feels like. And again, I think with a, a family who is, um, you know, they're going to own this business for another hundred years. There's not an acquisition around. I mean, there's not a, a sale around the corner or this, those kind of things. This is a long-term exercise. And being able to be on both of those ends, a very long-term and a today, because what we always say is uh, great short-terms make great long-terms, <laughs> right? So you got to be able to sort of process in a very bimodal mood. You got to be able to lead in a very bimodal mood. And then you got to be able to really assess and distribute talent around the world. Right. At the end of the day, it's still about people. It's still about talent. It's still about capabilities. In our sense, much like P&G, you know, we got to be able to sort of say, look, I'm trying to build a talent pipeline for the Middle East, for China, for greater Asia. Um, and so we got to be able to make sure those people have you know, very distinct experiences because they're going to have to be able to learn how to navigate and operate in those markets very effectively in our value system with our brands. Uh, and so that is you know, a very conscious exercise in terms of how we move people around the globe 
how we give them very differentiated experiences and how we set them up for success so they're well into the future. Anton, we're going to move into the creative brief. And my first okay. question is, you look for moments in your daily life to be still. You mm -hmm. say that is when your best ideas come. So mm -hmm. how in the world do you do that? And can you give us an example of an idea and of an idea that may have that, that came to you when you were still? Yeah, boy, I that's a really good one. Um, well, let me just sort of say I, I'm a you know I'm a southerner, so my parents woke up so early in the morning when we <laughs> when we were rising, and I that has always stayed with me. So I always tell people my most productive time is probably between five and seven a.m. in the morning. Um, it's the time that, I, that I'm alone most. It's the time I can truly be still because you know once that clock hits seven, you know, the, the world starts for me. Um, and I, I just try to get good thinking time, good processing time in, and then I'm, I'm ready for my day or my week or whatever I'm up against. And so I, that, that's just been a, a lifelong process for me. I enjoy it and it, it helps me be productive. I say the second thing is I'm just trying to think about uh, about ideas. I, I will say I'll take you a little bit back to my General Mills days. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about General Mills was uh you know, we, we had a lot of brands to play with, a lot of categories to play with at General Mills. One of my most favorite ones was one I was the brand manager on YoPlay. And what most people may not know, at least at that time, uh, General Mills never owned YoPlay up until uh, mid-2000s. Uh, we, were, we were a licensee from Sodema International, which owned the license all around the world. We owned three or four countries. U.S. was one of them. And uh, that business didn't make money for a long time, very long time. But one of the things that was always great about YoPlay was the marketing and the advertising. I mean, look, it was this brand that was always, at least from a U.S. context, it was from somewhere else, right? It was French. And uh, you, you may remember this, this concept called C'est uh, C'est Bon, right? It is so good. Uh, that was a very long-running campaign for us that really beautifully positioned YoPlay uh, in a way that was very, again, different and better, very distinct from its context. It would be yoga category, but also if you extend it to broader snacking, better for you snacking, very different sort of experience, very different expression, you know, from the brand as well. And so, you know, one of the things that um, that we always liked about it was, you know, people will say, well, is this for women or is it not? You look at the sort of the brand characteristics. Yeah, women probably ate it more. But, you know, guys sort of ate this stuff in disguise at that time because they didn't want to be seen with a plastic cup of yogurt in their hands because it, quote unquote, wasn't manly. Right. And so, you know, one of I would say in my early time periods, I, I thought about it, it's like, OK, look, we know that there is sort of closet consumption going on with men. Uh, why don't we just sort of come up with something where we're allowing men <laughs> the opportunity to consume this without feeling bad for it, right? Now, that never became a big idea, but we got a lot of interesting insights when we tested some creative, you know, in certain markets as well. And we found out that men, men loved it because they just liked the way it tastes. They just didn't want, they just didn't want anybody to know that they were eating yogurt, you know? So, so some of it was sort of getting into the male psyche, but also understanding that, uh, you know, men have as many diverse eating and consumption habits as any other gender. Right. And then how do we sort of think about that strategically in this context in yoga? And how do we start to poke at that in ways we can go and drive consumption in ways that people thought we would not have? And so uh, I, that that idea sort of came to me in one of my one of my more still moments. Sort of back Your early time. morning moments. Yes. yes. So what's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young boy growing up in Jackson, Mississippi? Yeah, well, uh, there was so many brands. It was more local brands at the time because, you know, Jim, at that time, being a Southerner, you know, there was a lot of local advertising. We're literally like local brands, but like maybe super regionals. I remember I'm, I've never been a drinker or anything, but the, the Paps 
Blue Ribbon Beer ran an incredible amount of advertising in Jackson, Mississippi. <laughs> you know, we had a big distributor there and uh, the local advertising was just constant. You know, it was radio ads. It was sort of independent, the local TV ads. And then we had, you know, personalities that had their own shows. They were sponsor of the shows as well. I just remember always feeling I was just surrounded by like Pat Blue Ribbon. And even though I was a consumer and I didn't desire it, I had a very good understanding around what that brand was, what it meant. It was about refreshment. You know, one of the things they always did was they did the click, right? When you open it, right? And it, yeah, and it signaled, right. it signaled yep. refreshment, like just like uh, a lot like Coke does it, but in the context of beer. And so uh, I didn't know that at the time, but I mean, the, the the marketing and the advertising and the way they built that brand was just incredible. You know, because it had some cues on there that really triggered you. Uh, if, if you were a consumer in a category, to really go out and get a six pack that night, or maybe even a case, <laughs> right? Um, in in situations where it was a very, you know, the South is very hot, you know, so everybody's always looking for refreshment most of the time. And so uh, a Pabst Blue Ribbon beer, I, I remember that one making a very, um, a very strong impact on me just from the way it hit me, not so much for me wanting to consume it, but but just remembering how, how I felt when I saw those ads. Maybe your early desire to go into marketing was from those those, no, those, maybe. those snappy no, maybe. ads from Paps. <laughs> but now that you say it, I mean, I grew up in, in near Philadelphia. Yeah. Now that you say it, I haven't thought about that. I was surrounded as a kid with local beer ads. A lot of local beers. Yeah. A lot of local beers. And my dad watched sports. So obviously it was on a lot. And I just remember lots of brands that aren't around anymore. Lots of ads for them. Yeah. Yeah. No, no I, I, I remember that. I just, uh, you know, we always talk about is old school language. We always talk about mnemonics, right? Yeah. And that mnemonic for Paps was just when you clicked that at top, man, it was just like, wow, you know, it really triggered something. And they, they really understood the visceral effects of yeah. advertising, I think, yeah. in those local ads for sure. Yeah. Who's been the most influential business mentor in your career? Wow, I've had so many. I think if I had to call one out, I think you know it's probably Mark Belton. Uh, Mark Belton was the highest ranking African American in General Mills, feels like forever. And I know when I first came into the business, that was the person I looked up to. It's like, wow, man, look, could I ever be like that guy one day? First of all, Mark is brilliant. Um, maybe one of the better marketers I've ever been around in my life. Really understood the nature of brands, really understood the nature of consumers. But he also understood the nature of big ideas and getting those ideas into the marketplace. He was he was incredible around that. And I, I had the opportunity to work for him for a couple of times. And he, he could be frustrating to work for because he was really asking you to process on a very, very different level. Right. Uh, you know, we had the brief, we had it ad ready to go, but he's asking you really questions that force you to dig, you know, two or three insights underneath to make sure that you're 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 vetting your own thinking. Now that's the game he was playing with you. And so, you know, once I got old enough to understand that, <laughs> I got less frustrated. But I, I just appreciated the uh, the intention of his leadership and how every interaction he was trying to make you better. Like I said, it could have been frustrating, but again, once you get on the other side of that, you, you realize how sharp he made you. And again, how he forced you to sort of process information, process insight, process ideas on very, very different levels. So I would say Mark was uh, was very, very influential to me. The other gentleman, I, I must say, I'm, it's a little sad because this is a person that gave me probably my first real job out of, out of, out of well, probably my second real job out of college. Um, I came up through the telecommunications industry. And, and Jim, you remember this company, MCI Telecommunications. Uh, I, I call them the Google of this day. And so they were they were there to essentially to fight AT&T and get a piece of the, in this case, the U.S. telecommunications services market. And um, Jim and Ramon Gregory. Uh, Ramon, um, probably before you died, probably one of the top five sort of customer care guys in the world. Uh, you know, ran customer service centers, built them all around the world, built networks. 
and was just an incredible leader. I mean, this guy could walk into any situation. He could figure it out intellectually, but his superpower was people. He was he just connected with people and he found a way to get the best out of you, no matter who you were, no matter where you're from, no matter what you look like, what your pedigree was, he was able to get the best out of people. So what I learned from Ramon was just how to connect with people on a very organic level, regardless of who they were, regardless of where they came from. You know, always find some level of commonality, always find some level of connection and find some way to align with them, even when you disagree with them. I've seen him get into just not arguments, but you know, like vehement disagreement around where to go. But um, he always left those situations like closer to the person. Like that person was more loyal to them, and they could they couldn't they couldn't agree more. You know, they couldn't disagree more vehemently on on a particular situation. So I really learned the connection part of leadership from him, and I, you know, I really tried to emulate that that you know my my entire life. Now, I just have to say, lastly, uh, I I just had great parents, man. I just had. Incredible parents, John. You know? I mean, I had parents who, you know, I think they prepared me for a world that they could only imagine. Um, they were smart. They were committed. They would give you the shirt off their back. Um, they didn't have to have the limelight. I just thought they just taught me and my four brothers just some rock solid values around how to be good people, how to be good human beings, uh, and how to be for something that's far beyond its value to you right? How to be for other people. And so I, I, I like to think of those values that stuck with me. I like to think that I'm still trying to execute against those values, you know, even at this point in my career. We're brothers. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> there, was <laughs> there was never a dull moment in our household. There was never a dull moment in our household. And a lot of broken things, by the way. <laughs> a lot of, and, and a lot of good sports too. When you have that many, I grew up in a neighborhood with all kinds of people <laughs> around and we just always had something going. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Hey, uh, that that's a good place to stop on your parents, but I do want to give you the chance to ask your biggest M&M's fan if you have any questions yeah. for him. <laughs> no, Jim, I just I just well, first of all, uh I don't think I ever told you this. You know, the the last time I think you and I set eyes on each other, you came to General Mills. I think you had just left P&G. And it's interesting, we were going through uh, a particular DNI phase. Really, we were just trying to go through the next level of DNI. Jeremy Mills has been very deep in DNI for a long time. And man, I just, I don't think I ever tell you just the impact. Yeah, you know, just be honest, as a white male coming in asking very, very hard questions around where we are and how, as leaders, because you were talking to a group of leaders around, look, are we doing enough? And are we searching our individual leadership power and, and, and influence to make sure we take ourselves to the next level? So I never had an opportunity to thank you for that um, because I just thought it was a very penetrating moment for quote unquote an, an outsider. I don't even know who asked you to come, by the way, um, but for an outsider. I think it was Mark, um, Mark Addicts back then. Might have been Mark Addicts. Yeah, yeah. might have been Mark Addicts. Um, but to have an outsider to come and to have such a unique grasp of the issues and the opportunities in a very genuine way uh, was just very, very powerful, man. So I don't think I ever got an opportunity to thank you for that. And that was years ago. It had to be at least seven, eight years ago. I remember the room. Yeah. I remember the room. Absolutely. Anton, this has been so good. Honestly, thanks for your generosity of spirit, your lessons, your learning, your humanity, and your honesty. And so uh, this has been a fabulous episode. I look forward to seeing you in person in a few weeks in the South of yes. France. How's yes, that? we'll see you in the South of France. We'll, we'll have a lot of fun. Well, I'm sorry. We'll be working and having a lot of fun. <laughs> it's both. Come on. It is both. It's always both. Yeah. <laughs> 
That was my conversation with Anton Vincent. Three takeaways from this one for your business, brand, and life. The first one is, it's a big one and a simple one. Big brands need to grow and drive culture. This is a strong philosophy of Anton. When he came into Mars Wrigley, his first questions were, are our big brands growing? Is the core strong? And are they driving culture? Authenticity and consistency are a big part of that. And brands that seem to manage Authenticity and consistency are the ones that get through some of the controversy that many brands are being exposed to in these times that we live in today. Second takeaway, the importance of bringing the brand to life inside your company. Anton talked about how they get the plants involved and what each brand's purpose is, how it's come to life, what the activations look like. So he works with his team to build energy inside the company for what the brand is doing. And he feels that has a material impact on the quality, the consistency of the great brands that Mars Wrigley brings to the market. Third takeaway, mentorship. Anton has benefited from people who have been fantastic mentors to him. He spoke about that in the podcast. And he also has a huge commitment in his life to be a mentor for up and coming talent, especially up and coming young black talent. He's a founding member of Becca, an organization that is doing extraordinary things to raise young black talent in our industry. That's it for this episode of the CMO podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.